In your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, one is in the chair in front of you. And you can follow along very easily just by turning to page 408. Probably a lot of people have a hard time finding Nehemiah tucked away there in the Old Testament. So page 408, uh, if you uh, would like to follow along in the scriptures in the chair in front of you. I I know that uh, you regulars join me in saying how much we've been uh, blessed through the faithful exposition of the Holy Scriptures by Pastor Rob. We have got one faithful pastor, don't we? Wonderful Bible teacher. We are blessed. And uh, we're blessed also to have his mom here today. And nice to have her here. So they made a trade. Uh, (laughs) Rob's father got his son and Rob's wife got her her mother-in-law. And (laughs) there you go. If you uh, look at Nehemiah as as an overall book, it it divides very easily for you. In the first uh, six chapters, you have the rebuilding of the walls, a marvelous feat by Nehemiah in 52 days. And then if you look at chapter 7 through 12, where Rob finished last uh, Sunday morning, uh, you have the revival of the hearts of God's people. So rebuilding of the walls, revival of the hearts. In chapter 10, you may remember that, and I was thinking of it as Paul was announcing about the bricks out there and commitments and, and uh, devotion, uh, the people actually signed a spiritual covenant in this revival that they would obey the law of God. In particular, they talked about separation from the surrounding nation, Ammonites, Moabites. They talked about the Sabbath and keeping it holy again. And they uh, talked about their giving and uh, their tithing. And then in chapter 12, as it moves along, we saw last week the people of God experienced the joyful service of dedication. I thought to myself how nice it would be if the book of Nehemiah would end right there. And that if what Rob finished last week were the end of the book, uh, but it isn't. and it'd be nice if it simply, if we could tack on a verse, verse 48 to chapter 12, and say, And God's children walked in obedience, and they all lived happily ever after. But life isn't always like that. Uh, too often there's a chapter 13, even in our lives as well. General William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he once said to a group of young preachers, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. That's a wonderful statement. And again, I was thinking of that about the bricks and the commitment we're making as a congregation. It's easy for the fire to go out. Nehemiah served as governor in Jerusalem the best we can put the scriptures together for 12 years. And he promised the king Artaxerxes, 800 miles away in Susa in Persia, that after the construction was done, he would return. And so he was a man of his word. And he went back to Susa to serve the king of Persia. What we don't know, and what's kind of interesting, no matter where you look in any commentary, no one knows how long uh, he was back in Persia before he returned to Jerusalem that brings us to chapter 13 today. 
In Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, you'll, you'll see while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. He was back in Persia. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Now notice those first few words there at the end of verse 6. And after some time, there's the, there's the problem. We don't know how long is after some time. Was it a year? Was it two years? Was it five years? We simply don't know. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is what happened when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem. Simply stated, we'll use an old-fashioned term that may not mean something to some of you newer people. And that is the people of God had backslidden. That's an old-fashioned term they, they would use for believers who made a commitment to do what was right, but then something came in and tripped them up, and they went back to their old way. They backslid to their old way of living. So when Nehemiah returns there, he realizes something has to be done. Things weren't the way they were when he left them in this spirit of revival. And they needed to have that compromise confronted. And so that's the, that's the text today. It's a negative text in a sense. The courage to confront compromise. Uh, Nehemiah is in a very uncomfortable position, one I'm sure he wishes he were not in, just like any person that has to have the courage to confront compromise. It's not a pleasant thing to do. I've never enjoyed confronting people. People who know me and know my personality have said to me at times, you know, that's probably not difficult for you. It is. And, and let me say this, if any person found confrontation of the light, I'd say there's something psychologically wrong with them. No one really enjoys it. But a good leader has the courage to confront compromise. Now, there were four areas that Nehemiah needed to confront here in chapter 13. It's a long chapter, and trust me, and you hear me say this every time I speak, when you do a message and it's about this long, then the, the work really begins. It's called chop, 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 because the people of God cannot handle all that. So you have to start cutting, and you've got to just leave things out you'd love to preach. This is a chapter you could take four sermons on very easily, and we're going to try to condense it down here uh, into the time allotted. The very first one that we'll notice that needed confronted was what I call compromising companionship. Compromising companionship. I'm reading verses 1 to 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And it was found written, here it is, now they're going back to Deuteronomy here. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse him. Yet our God turned the curse to a blessing. As soon as the purple people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now notice in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, what he says there. No Ammonite, now this is the law of God, or a Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord. Now it's a very clear command. There's no exception there. There are no, they, they can't enter unless, so there's none of that. It's simply a straightforward command that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of Israel. The reason they didn't want Israel coming in and accepting these uh, foreigners into their midst was that they knew they would corrupt the people of God from serving 
the one true God. They knew that. And God said, if you allow this to happen, you're going to compromise your morals. You're not going to keep worshiping me. You're going to start falling away and worshiping their gods. Well, in verse 4 we read, Now before this Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber that they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandments of the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priest. Now we ask the question here, who, who is Tobiah? We've seen him several times if you followed, if you've been along in the book of Nehemiah with Pastor Rob. He was an enemy of God, and he was an enemy of the Israelites. We've seen him several times in the book. He was a deceptive, powerful man who could pull strings, and apparently he intimidated Eliashib, who is now the, the priest, the high priest. So Eliashib takes a room. Now, we don't understand this very much in, in verses 4 and 5, because when we think of the house of God, we think of people coming together, worshiping the Lord, and space to worship the Lord. But in the temple, they had these various places set apart where they would store the grains that the people brought in for their tithes, the tithing of the land, and the, and the wine, and, and the different things that would take care of the priest. And so what Eliashib does, he removes all that stuff out that God had told them where to store the holy things. And instead he makes these uh, plurality of rooms, as we'll see a little bit later on. And he gives Eliashib a place to, uh, to have an apartment that you and I might say. And you ask yourself, is, is Tobiah out of place in the holy temple of God. And I say like Miley Cyrus twerking in a convent. That's how out of place he was. You just don't put the two together. It would just be like taking a statue, a monument of Martin Luther and putting it in the Vatican. Uh, the two don't mix. And that's the same way it is with, with, with Tobiah in, in the temple of God. He's the enemy of God. And remember, as we saw back in 1 to 3, God told Israel, be separated from the Ammonite. This man had no business whatsoever being in the house of God. So it begs a question. Why would the high priest, Eliashib, allow, why would he make this compromise? Why would he allow such a thing? Two factors I might point out to you. Notice in, in verse 4, if you follow that closely, at the very end of verse 4, it says, Elishab was related to Tobiah, probably through marriage. So anytime now you get a little bit of a, of a marriage entering into that, and you get relatives who are related, then you, your tendency is to want to, you know, let down the standards a little bit. The second thing is that Tobiah's name is actually a Jewish name, which meant God is good. So he wasn't totally an Ammonite. He was part Ammonite and part Israel, kind of like he's not fish and he's not fowl. And so he's a little bit Israel, and even his name is, a, is an Israel. And so probably putting those two compromises, thoughts together, that's why Tobiah, uh, why uh, Eliashib did what he, uh, what he did. It's always tough to side with a a commandment, a strict commandment of God's word, such as excluding all Ammonites 
from the assembly of Israel when your relative is an Ammonite, especially when he seems to be part Jewish. Theological compromise, personal compromise, often creeps in through the doors of relationships, now catch this, with those who are partly right, but partly very much wrong. It's always a little easier of a compromise there. He's not really an evil person. He's not, he doesn't, doesn't, no, he's just part, he's got a Jewish name. And so you start rationalizing in your mind, and before you've known, you've made a decision you shouldn't have made. And so what does Nehemiah do? Verse 6. While this was taking place, I wasn't in Jerusalem, but after some time I asked leave of the king. Verse 7, I came to Jerusalem. I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house. And I was very angry. Notice. And I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah comes back. He sees what's happened. And to put it in a very understandable way, he was livid. The first thing I thought of as I was studying this passage was when Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, you remember, he went into the temple where they had taken the house of prayer and turned it into money changes where people were, were ripping each other off. And he was so upset and he was so angry, he overthrew the tables, he got a whip, he beat the people with whips, he chased them out of the temple. Now you know why Pastor Rob asked me to preach on this passage, don't you? <laughs> I mean, what do you do with that? It, it, he's not rebuked for it. He's angry. There is such a thing as righteous indignation, is there not? The trouble is most of us get angry over the things we shouldn't be angry about, and we don't get angry about the things we should be angry about. Because Nehemiah's anger, I have a feeling, I think it's true, was solely for the glory of God and that God's name was being compromised. So he comes into the place and he finds this rattlesnake in there and he dumps all his stuff outside. Verse 8. Then notice verse 9. I love, he had the room literally fumigated. I mean, it's kind of like, did you ever get so angry? Just, I don't even want the smell of that person around. That's the idea. And then he brings back the holy vessels of the house of God, the grain offering of the Frank Sons, verse 9. In other words, Nehemiah did some house cleaning. He was determined that he would not live with wrong, parentheses, Tobiah's evil. He would not live with wrong in a place that was built for right, the temple of God. Now today, this building is not the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you walk, wherever you go, you take God with you. We are standing on holy ground. I know that there are angels all around. Let us praise Jesus now. We are standing in his presence on holy ground. You are just as much on holy ground when you take your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, into work as you are when you take him into the building here at Austinville. But do you understand that? You are just as much 
standing on holy ground with your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, when you take him into a nightclub or a bar, as it is when you're at Osterville Baptist Church. Are you with me? You are the temple of God. And if we take Nehemiah's words here, I love it. He would not, he would not live with wrong in a place that was built for right. I don't know who your relationships or companionships are with. Please understand, I'm not talking about isolation. We had too much of that 50 years ago in the church. Jesus says you're in the world. Jesus said you were of the world. Jesus saved you and he says, I've called you out of the world. Jesus says, but I've sent you into the world. Oh, that's John 17. So we're not talking about isolation, but I'm telling you this. The closer you build relationships with companions who are constantly trying to pull you away from what you know is right, is a time that you must have the courage to confront compromise and say, I'm not going there any longer. I'm not staying here. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I doubt there's a person here who couldn't stand up and look back over their life and say, yeah, I fell under the influence there and I shouldn't have. Bad company corrupts good morals. So Eliashib takes a room that was set aside for the storage of the tithes in the house of Warsaw, which took care of the priest. And uh, he's cleansing the place out now. And he's put, can you imagine Tobiah when he came back to his apartment that night and found it was full of corn? Huh? Can you imagine that? And all the stuff is laying outside. There's a second thing, we've got to move quickly. Not only comp- uh, 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 compromising companionships, but also financial fiasco. This is the second area of confrontation of this bold man of God. So we pick it up at verse 10. I've also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites, the singers who did the work, had each uh, fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Now, this problem was very much connected with the previous problem, the first one. And you will find in your life, as I do, that spiritual problems that we have seldom occur in isolation. There's usually a, a package that kind of fits together where one affects the other that affects the other, and that's this case here. Because the high priest had moved to buy into the temple, now there were not enough storerooms for the tithes. And since there were not enough storerooms for the tithes, and you remember the tithe was commanded by God to Israel, 10% of all their income to take care of the Levites, so that they did not have to work. Their job was to do the singing, the music, the preaching of the word, and ministering to to the people of God. So the other tribe were to give their tithes to the Levites in order to sustain the work of God. Well, what happens when God's people aren't faithful with finances? Sure, the work of God suffers. Just think right here in OBC. Let's take it right here, even though it's an application, not an interpretation of the text. Let's just say we all stop giving. Well, how are the pastors going to be able to, uh, to be paid? Would you tell me how Katie's going to continue to live in extravagance if you do that? You, you can't do that. 
We wouldn't have the music. We wouldn't have the, the minister of music. We, we wouldn't have the bills paid. It would be financial fiasco. Nehemiah says, when I checked the temple, they weren't to be found, the ministers. Verse 11 says they're out in their own field. So what's Nehemiah do? Let's pick it up in verse 11 quickly here. So I confronted the officials. We saw that. Verse 12. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shalmaliah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, Padiah, the Levites, Hanan, Mataniah. They were considerable liable, or we would say they were faithful men. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then Nehemiah offers a prayer. The word confronted, by the way, is a very strong word. It means to find fault and to rebuke. With regard to the tithes, Nehemiah not only reprimanded the officials, he established storehouses for the corn, the new wine, and the oil. He then appointed these faithful men to distribute these provisions. And now the work of God is functioning. The priests are ministering the word of God. The musicians are performing the music. The people of God now can come and worship the Lord God together. All because now they had corrected the problem of financial fiasco. And the tithes were being brought in to the storehouse. Maybe some of you need to take a long look at the 1040 form. Finding out how much money, gross income, you brought in. And how much comes under the contribution sign. Let me ask you a simple question. This is another message all in itself. Is the Lord at the top of your quote-unquote expenses? Bad word. Or is he at the bottom? Let me put it in a biblical way. Does the Lord Jesus receive the first fruits of your substance at the very beginning? Or does he get the leftovers? You understand what I'm saying, don't you? Now, I can't answer that for you, and you can't answer it for me. And you can make any excuse you want to make. And we can talk about the tithe that's under the Old Testament law, and then 10% was demanded of the Jew, and we're not the Jew, we're the church, and now we have grace giving, and blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you something. The 10% that was demanded of Israel 500 years before was practiced by Abraham when he gave Melchizedek tithes, and when Jacob, a few a hundred years later, gave tithes, the same of him. So it goes back 2,000 years. There's a principle there. Be careful to disregard a principle that you find flowing through the scriptures. And so it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start your Christian life. At the very top. To give to the Lord. I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather have 90% with God's blessing than 100% without his blessing. Okay? A grateful Christian is a giving Christian. And then you find in verse 14, Nehemiah prays again. What a man. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. You find four times where Nehemiah prays in this chapter. Because he knew he was upsetting the people. He knew his poll ratings in the election to be the next governor of Nehemiah were really dropping and sinking fast. I don't know of any person that doesn't like to be loved or affirmed. And I think every so often Nehemiah just drops to his knees and says, Lord, 
You know all about this. Paul the Apostle said, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Every young would-be preacher ought to hear that. If you're out to please people, stay out of the ministry for God's sake, will you? Stay out of the ministry. And if I upset you today and you're upset and you get angry with me, let me say to you, that's okay. It really is. It's okay. But the key is to evaluate what has been said, substance, with where I'm at in my life, my spiritual life. That's the key. I've got to go to the third one. Paul took so long on the announcements, I've got to cut back here on my... (laughs) Third uh, area of compromise confronted is what I call disregarded distinctives. So we've gone from compromising companionship to financial fiasco to disregarded distinctives. Picking it up in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine passes on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which is brought in Jerusalem, notice again, on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish, all kinds of goods, sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles in Judah and said, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Are you getting two words constantly repeated? Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? Don't you remember what your dads did and your forefathers did? They did the very thing, and this is why you are in captivity in Babylon. It was because they disregarded the Sabbath. That's why you have the judgment of God. Are you asking for more judgment of God? Haven't you learned anything from history? Haven't you learned from your fathers? That when they walked with God, the blessing of God was poured on their life. And when they disobeyed God, the judgment of God was poured on their life. Haven't you learned that yet? Where have you been? Now you are bringing into verse 18 more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now let me say something that may surprise some of you, shock others, and disgust some of you. Sunday's not the Sabbath. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Oh, today's the Christian Sabbath, baloney. Not true. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath is always Saturday. Always. The Christian is not obligated to keep the Sabbath. You got it? Six of, uh, excuse nine of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament for the church. Guess which one is not mentioned in the New Testament? The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a, may I say it, dispensational distinctive for the nation of Israel. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. So whatever you hear me say following... Remember, this is not the Sabbath today. The Sabbath, like circumcision, set the Israelite apart from the other nations of the world, and they said, God says, you are my unique people. You are to be a distinct people. Now, you remember back in chapter 10, verse 31, where Rob covered this for us a couple weeks ago. Listen, and if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day on a holy day. That was the brick they dropped into the caner out there. 
Are you with me? They made the commitment. They will no longer do that. Nehemiah now comes back, and what are they doing? The very thing they promised they wouldn't do. How quickly we forget. Now they're doing business on that day, and they're even doing it in Jerusalem. Notice at verse 15, he says, which they at the end brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Merchants from Tyre had no scruples about the Sabbath. were doing brisk business, selling the fish. Merchandise in the city on the Sabbath. They were making a lot of money. So no doubt the Jewish businessman, he thought, well, everybody else is doing business, so I can't compete if I close up shop. Do you get it? It's like any of these compromises we rationalize. We try to take the law of God and what the principles of the law of God are clearly stated and then we weasel our way around them. And that's what they were doing. Again, we're not under the strict Sabbath laws of Israel, but be careful when you put business in the pursuit of pleasure ahead of worship. This is the Lord's day. It's not the Sabbath. It's not the Christian Sabbath. It's no more holy than Monday. It's no more holy than Thursday. You say, well, why are we meeting on Sunday? Because that's what the early church did in commemoration of what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we worship every day. But the Lord's Day is set apart from historical tradition where God's people gather in one place and we worship together. Be careful when you set that aside. Well, I'd like to, but you know, I work long hours during the week. When I get home, I'm exhausted. I need some downtime. I go to church more often, but Sunday's my only day off. Sure is nice to sleep in. It's the only day I can really golf. I can worship God out there as much as I can worship Him here. Not if you play like me. Spiritual permissiveness always affects how we spend our time. It was the day of rest for the Jews. Nehemiah came back and found the Sabbath was no different than Thursday or Monday to the Jews. What again about that promise they made back in Nehemiah 10.31? And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath to say, we will not buy them from on the Sabbath day. So Nehemiah took three steps to change the situation. Pick it up in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut. I gave orders they should not be able to shut the doors leading into the city. There's a wall around Jerusalem. He's built it. Now they've got gates. Lock the door. And they can't be open until after that. Now keep in mind, the Sabbath day was this. It started at 6 o'clock Friday night. That's when it began. It ended Saturday at 6 o'clock. That was the Sabbath, 24 hours, 6 to 6 p.m. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them, I said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now listen, that was not the laying on of hands as you see at a commissioning service of a missionary. That wasn't a group of elders getting around and praying over someone as they go out to serve the Lord. You know what this laying on hand was? You know exactly what it was, don't you? 
Nehemiah says, I'll get a hold of you. I will throw you out of this place. Let me have time, personal sin confession, to cleanse my soul. Okay? Now this is something that goes back 50 years. So, you know, you begin by making an excuse for your behavior. 50 years ago next June. When I got, sa- I got saved out of, uh, after I'd been out of the army for a year, I didn't know anything about church life. Knew nothing. I'd never been, I don't remember ever going to Sunday school in my life before I got saved after I got out of the army. Shortly after I got out of the army, I got called to ministry. First day I'm, first day I'm at Bible college, this young, sharp, six-foot-two former Marine in the, in, the, in the 8th and I Honor Guard down there in Washington, D.C., came up to me, introduced himself, what his name was, and then he says, uh, welcome to Bible college. He says, what are you doing on Sunday? And I thought for a minute, before I could answer, he says, how'd you like to go to jail with me? Now, you haven't been asked that too many times, probably, have you? And I thought, well, why not? He said, you don't have to do anything else. You just want to give a testimony. I said, okay. So I went with him, and I never got out of jail. (laughs) He went to the mission field a year later. He and his wife went down to the Ecuador among the Quechua Indians. And then I took his place as the third chaplain with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry. So all from the time I was saved, I never knew how a church operated. Are you with me? Now, I went to church there when I was a chaplain, but I never really got into the inner work because I was in jail. And I'll tell you what, if you, the, the best training to deal with people in a congregation is to work with people in prison. I mean, you know, they're just like one another. They're, they're identical, really. So if you can work with them, you can work with anybody. Well, I got out of, I, I, I finished, I, I got called uh, to a local church outside of uh, Washington, D.C., just over the Pennsylvania, uh, uh, the Maryland line off Pennsylvania Avenue. It was a little church that had been through some problems, and that was my first pastorate. I never, I never said I only commit. I didn't know how churches operated. No, no idea. And I was still in seminary. And about three weeks after I was there, I looked out at the congregation, and of course I knew you know, by then, there's a small church, I knew them all. And I saw this fellow, I couldn't believe it. Dallas Jones. I led him to faith in Christ when he was an inmate in Fairfax County Jail. Then he went down to Culpeper, Virginia, to the state convict camp of love. And I used to drive down there every Friday night and I'd minister to him and disciple him. Now Dallas got out of, the only, the only place he'd ever been to church was in the jail. He stood out like a sore thumb. Because back then, I'm going 50 years ago, everybody, you see, I'm still affected today. Everybody wore a tie, the men wore ties, all the ladies wore dresses, you know how the, the game goes. And he walks in, he's got a tank top on, and some old scruffy shorts and, and some flip-flops or sandals or whatever you call them. So he stood out like a sore thumb. I was so happy to see him. I was so happy. And after the service, we're in the vestibule, and, you know, you kind of sit up there and you talk. And the chairman of the board, I gave him a nickname two days after I took the church. I called him Bluster, because he was always blustering around. But I saw Bluster go up to Dallas, and I heard him, he was right, I was talking to him, but he's right there. And he says, you know, you're welcome here at the church. But he says, next time, dress more appropriately, would you? is that dress doesn't go over in this church. I was so angry. 
I grabbed Bluster by the Adam's apple. <laughs> I pressed him up against the wall. And I said, if you ever do that again to anybody, I will literally bodily throw you out on the street. Don't you ever do that. You say, were you angry? Yeah, I was good and angry. Were you under control? I hope so. But can I tell you the relief I had when I came to Nehemiah 13? <laughs> I, I mean, we're all looking for justification. Now, I know exactly what you're thinking as you're sitting there. I know what you're thinking. I'm sure glad you're not my pastor. I understand that. But it just, Nehemiah was so upset. He was angry. He says, if you keep doing this, I'll lay hands on you. So Nehemiah lastly commanded the Levites to purify themselves, to stand as gatekeepers, keep the Sabbath day. French agnostic Voltaire, by the way, said, if you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. Now, I don't agree with that, very frankly. If you want to kill Christianity, you must abolish Sunday. Because I go to some places in the world that are majority Muslim, where Sunday is a work day. Saturday is still the Sabbath to a Muslim or to a Jew. So if the Christians want to gather together, normally they do it on Saturday. Because otherwise, Sunday's a work. Sunday's like our Monday. So you wouldn't have too many men showing up. So I, I, but I understand what, what he was saying there. I think he was saying, don't disregard your distinctive. Sunday is distinctively the Lord's day. Protect it. Protect it with your family. Don't make it a rigid, legalistic thing. But hopefully you come because you want to worship with God's people, be filled with the Spirit, learn the Word of God, and be strengthened to go forth. Let me close it out. Confrontation number four. It has to do with mixed marriages. So we've been to compromising companionship, financial fiasco, disregarding distinctive now mixed marriages. Let me pick it up in verse 23, and we'll read and just say a few things. In those days, verse 23, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. That means they couldn't study the Hebrew scriptures, by the way. Couldn't understand them, because they didn't speak Hebrew. And I confronted them, I cursed them. Now that, listen, that doesn't mean he swore at them. That's a very strong word that means a form of rebuke and saying you are wrong. Stop it. It's not a swearing as we say it. And I feel another sermon coming on with the way I hear Christians talk sometimes too. That's another subject. And I beat some of them. I pulled out their hair. Pastor Rob, when he asked me to preach on this, he laughed and he said, you'll enjoy pulling out some hair Sunday morning. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to the sons, your daughters for the sons, for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of woman? Among the nations, no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him, nevertheless, foreign woman even made him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and you do all this great and evil and act treacherously against our God? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, enemy number one. Therefore, I chased him out of the city. Chased the son-in-law out of the city. Then he goes to prayer again. Final evidence of Israel's backsliding and the one that caused the most grief to Nehemiah was the problem of unequally yoked marriages, which they entered into, though they had signed a covenant that we saw to preserve their God-given domestic relationships. Again, I just point you back to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30, where they said in their, in their commitment, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters or their sons. The Jews were forbidden to marry people of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And when Nehemiah heard the children, as he comes back to Jerusalem, speaking in the Ashdod tongue, instead of the Hebrew tongue, he became livid. Mixed marriages. We need to understand that in our application today, it has nothing to do with race or nation. It has to do with a spiritual people, the people of God, who are told not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, which simply says this, as a believer, you do not marry an unbeliever. End of discussion. No compromise. Nothing to talk about. It's a command. Waffle with it if you will. Let your emotions run wild with you. And you'll pay the piper sooner or later. The bills come due. Marrying an unbeliever affects us, but also our children. Because they usually grow up speaking the language of Ashdod. And not understanding the things of God. There's no more vulnerable area in our lives than that of emotional attachment we have with the opposite sex. Satan never comes along and says to a Christian young person, wouldn't you like to marry this nice young girl from Ashdod? She'll lead you to worship her gods. And you'll forsake your family's gods. And when you have children, she'll insist that they worship the God of Ashdod. No, he doesn't say that. He's too, he's too smart. He, here's what he might say. He might say something like, you know, your parents are really too strict. They're really, they're really too old-fashioned. And that church you go to, I'm telling you, they're out of touch. They are old-fashioned. I just thought of that song, remember? They call me old-fashioned because I believe that Jesus is God's holy son, etc., etc. They call me old-fashioned. And then he goes through a list of biblical truths. You're missing out. Look at how much fun they're having out there in the world. Look at the fun. Look how much fun this sexy babe from Ashdod would be. You don't have to marry her. You don't have to get, just date her, just go out. Just have a good time. And before you know it, you've compromised your morals, while at the same time she promises that she will follow his God 
after they get married. Moral permissiveness always begins like an innocent trickle through the dam, but it subtly winds until the dam suddenly gives away. At that point, the damage is serious and widespread. So what did he do? Verse 25. I confronted them, cursed them, pulled out their hair. It's been 30 years about when I had a young lady come to me and I was serving as a pastor. She wanted me to officiate at her wedding. She and her family, she grew up in the church. I was pastoring her family. I've been there for years and years. We're leaders. And so I always ask the obvious question. I'll be glad to you know, talk to you after we go through some marriage counseling, blah, blah, blah. But I found out the young man she wanted to marry was not a believer. I said, well, unless he comes to trust Christ as Savior, I said, I really can't officiate at that met wedding, which is the conviction of mine. Maybe you don't share it. That's okay. We disagree. I'd say, if you want a wedding, like that, go down to the justice of the peace. That's fine. If you're standing before me as a minister of the gospel, it's a spiritual service, just like this Sunday morning service. It's a spiritual service. So I just can't do it. Others may do it. I can't do it. Well, then the family came to see me, leaders in the church. They were so upset. Where's your love? Where's a caring pastor? And you try to explain what your position is. Well, they all left the church. I have a feeling that there's some of you that have disregarded this command and maybe you married an unbeliever. Now you're going to come up to me afterwards and you're going to tell me of how that unbeliever came to faith in Christ and what a wonderful home you have. Now, you know, all I can say is praise the Lord. Isn't the grace of God wonderful? But do not frustrate the grace of God. Don't expect to disobey and then for God's blessing to come later. If it does, praise the Lord. Grace, mercy. That's God. But I'll tell you what. For every one person you can say that it happened, that the unbeliever then became a believer, I can take it at 10 or 15 or 20 where that didn't happen. I can tell you as a pastor, as a heartache, uh, one of the greatest heartaches I had was looking out uh, in, over the church on a Sunday morning and seeing a mother sit with the two little kids or three kids or child. And dad wasn't there because he had no interest in spiritual things. And you would talk to these gals and how they longed to have a family together in Christ like they see with so many families. And it would never have happened had the person followed the biblical Principles to begin with. Muriel and I had a principle. We raised two daughters. You never, principle number one, can't be violated. You never date a person automatically disqualified for marriage. You say, whoa. Let me say it again. You never date a person. One date. You never date a person that is automatically disqualified for marriage. Why allow your emotions to get run away with? Why even take that first step? The second thing I did as a father, my daughters could never go on a date until they had several dates with their dad. And dad and daughters had dates alone. Took them to their favorite restaurants. As they got older, it got more expensive. (laughs) And there we would discuss. And what they had to do, listen, they had to develop their principles. I give them the guideline of scriptures. 
You, you go study it. They had to de- develop their principles that by God's grace they would not, the brick in the, in the, in the container, that they would not compromise on before they, they could date. I know probably a lot of fellows didn't go out with my daughter because of who their dad was. Praise the Lord for that, but we sure got two fine, wonderful sons-in-law. We're glad for that. Now, you, you parents should choose your own thing to do. That, that's your, your business. That simply was ours. Okay, we're done in three minutes. <laughs> three conclusions, concluding principles, very quickly. Nehemiah confronted problems head on. In other words, problems don't go away. Whether it's in a church, in a committee, in a home, problems don't go away. They must be confronted. Two, Nehemiah corrected the problems prayerfully. Let me give you the verses. Four times Nehemiah prays in this chapter. Verse 14, 22, 29, 31. You don't do what Nehemiah did here without incurring the wrath of the people. But Nehemiah was seeking to please God by calling God's people back to holy living. Three, he didn't allow, now catch this, praying about it to be an excuse for not dealing with it. In other words, I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, you know, I've prayed about it, meaning that's all I intend to do. No. Pray about it, you bet. But don't let praying about it become an escape from not having the courage to confront the compromise. Nehemiah never compromised the convictions God gave him from his word. And if it meant he'd be unpopular, that's okay. His love was regulated by truth, and his truth was balanced by love. A good leader has the courage to confront compromise. The question simply is, what kind of leader are you? That's all. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Shall we pray?